welcome to another episode of William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm John Collins, the author and the founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. Together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that have either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revival. Charles, last week was exciting. I'm even more excited about today. How about you? Yeah, I'm excited too, John. I'm really uh, excited and glad to start diving into actual the subject matter. Uh, We've got got some excellent uh, episode ideas lined up for people, and today we're just going to going to start off, John, uh, talking about the early life of William Branham, uh, really in his days leading up to him coming into Indiana, and then just an early time in Indiana. And so that that's right. a fun topic. I remember <clears throat> growing up, I would watch my grandfather, who was the pastor at William Branham's Branham Tabernacle. And, you know, back then I looked at it as this holy thing, but now I realize he was trying to recruit people into the message cult. And one of his tools for recruiting was he had this device that um, he could stick in a cassette tape of William Branham's life story and stick in this blank copy, a, a blank cassette tape, and in like two minutes flat, it copied the entire uh, recording of the life story. And he would, you know, write on it, William Branham's life story, and that's how he quote-unquote witnessed, or now I realize he recruited into the message cult. And growing up, he gave me one of these copies, and I listened to it until I literally wore the recording off of the tape. The voice in many places you could not hear this tape. And now I look back, and it's similar to what we discussed um last week it's just so much of it is just fable it's i look at it like one of aesop's fables yeah i i i i'm have a similar experience you know in in our part of the message where we come from uh we were a little bit strange in the fact we did not listen to william branham's tapes on a constant loop we had different things we would would listen to on loop from our own preachers and you know our our knowledge of brother branham's early life just came from what was handed down to us orally for the most part john and uh, i remember when i was a, a teenager i had a had an aunt who uh, went over she visited the tabernacle she was more connected to uh, uh, your sect than mine and uh, she brought uh, back some tapes uh, there was like a little tape library you could get like the best of William Branham, you know, it's kind of, you know, how they sold them and stuff. So she brought back this little package of the best of William Branham, and she gave it to him, and it starts out with one of his life story tapes. And that's the only really life story tape of his I ever listened to or paid much attention to it. But yeah, I listened to that lots of times, uh, heard the life story version he told on there, and and it uh, it matched up pretty close to what, what we had been told uh, where we were at. Um, I know one of the things on there that that really jumped out to me, though. I know after I started, after I became a preacher, I uh, we won't get into all this today, but I, I preached a sermon and referenced some stuff on the my life story tape. And as soon as I had got done preaching, uh, the pastor got up and said, "No, that's not how that happened," <laughs> and uh, gave the alternate version. Of one of the, you know, the multiple alternate versions of William right. Branham's life story. I'm like, my goodness, I, I thought for sure I listened to that off that tape correctly. <laughs> and so that was really the first time, John, after I had done been a preacher, that I really became aware there are these wildly, wildly different versions right. of William Branham's life story that he told. Right. And so uh, that maybe can uh, be a segue into us uh talking about the most prominent life story version, John, that you and I certainly are most familiar with and heard growing up the most. Yeah, and and I'm actually curious to know if the version that I have stuck in my head from childhood is the same version as you. (laughs) I've I've learned that my version doesn't match many people that, you know, they had a different version of the life story, and so that's the one that they they listened to. My grandfather also had several reel-to-reel recordings. I believe many of them weren't, not many, but I believe some of them weren't in the collection that people have access to hear. When he died, 
uh, I am told that the staff at Voice of God Recordings, William Branham's cult headquarters, swarmed his house and they made this military-like train to get all of the stuff out of his house that, you know, I I have many questions about the all stuff. All of the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's lots and lots of stuff that these older uh, first-generation message preachers have, John. Yeah. I, I thank, thank goodness I was able to leave with photocopies of, of vast amounts of things. Um, right. I, I, they accused me of stealing a lot of it, but uh, yeah. of course, I, you know, I didn't steal it, anything. But I did take some photocopies of stuff, and I, I found replicas of it as well. But yeah, the stuff they have, John, is is incredible, and they know and have known a lot of these discrepancies existed. Right. Four decades, John. They just hid it from us. It, it's just incredible. But yeah, I know for me, the the version of the life story that I grew up with was most familiar with was. Uh, you know what, about April 1909, William Branham was born in the hills near Burksville, Kentucky, right? Right. Um, and it was just a little one-room log cabin. You know, we had that picture uh, in his book, which I might hold up here. I think I've got it. Or maybe not. I'm, yeah, here's the picture right here. You know, the picture in his book. And, John, you might be able to... Uh, to get a better picture for the viewers, but he he grew up and he was born in this one room log cabin. Uh, it was right about dawn, and as he was born, the pillar of fire which followed him all his life uh, swirled into the window, came down, it landed on the pillow next to him in bed, uh, and the noise of that, the rumor of that, went all over the community, and everyone knew that he was born under this mystical sign. So he was peculiar from birth. Uh, he he spent several years growing up in Kentucky, running the hills, the woods. Uh, he, he even, I believe, you know, he said he was old enough to go to school there, but he didn't go much. His grandfather was uh, a principal in the school system. And he uh, eventually had this vision or this experience. He walked past a tree, and when he walked past the tree, uh, a voice spoke to him from the tree and said, uh, you're going to move to a place near New Albany. And shortly thereafter, his family moves to Jeffersonville, which is near New Albany. And there he, he grows up. His father dies shortly thereafter, and he ends up having to take care of his mother, his brother, his sister, so he can't get an education. And, uh, you know, as he goes through that, uh, eventually he uh, decides he's going to leave home, go out for a better life, and he heads out to Arizona as a teenager. But when his brother dies suddenly and unexpectedly, he comes back to Indiana, uh, and, and and that's when he has his convergence experience. And I think that's maybe the point in time maybe we'll talk about today, up, up that phrase of time. But right. anyways, that's kind of the official story. Is that close to what you believe, John, or heard? You know, that's that's fairly close. So my father traveled a lot. We grew up in churches from Arizona to South Carolina, everywhere in between. And um, some of the churches that we visited or attended were similar to you. They would tell what Brother Branham said about the, you know, whatever doctrine or experience, etc. And it was interesting to me because a lot of the churches won't actually quote the Bible in the sermons, they'll quote what William Branham said about the Bible. They'll mm-hmm. say, remember William Branham said that in chapter such and such of Romans, X happened, or remember Brother Branham said X, Y, and Z about, you know, Malachi, whatever. They never really actually open up and read it. And um, so we started a tape church, and my grandfather copied the entire, what is it, 1,200 sermons of William Branham onto these blank copies for my father. And, um, I started experiencing new life stories and I still never noticed that they were different, but that was because in my mind, the, the original copy that I wore the, the recording off was exactly what you described. He lived this Huckleberry Finn lifestyle in the hills of Kentucky, trapping and fishing. He... The, the copy that I had, he talked about all of his siblings in the log cabin with him. And the mother would pour coon grease in their eyes. And he would say some ridiculous thing like, that's what we need today. We need more coon grease in your eyes or, you know, <laughs> ridiculous stuff. But that's the version that I had in my head. And my family, I have family members that actually make money off of taking people to tours 
to go see Burksville and see this big open field. This is where the cabin used to be. And I never will forget the surprise that came on to me the first time I saw the Voice of Healing magazine when William Bram's giving a different earlier version of his life story. And he says, mm-hmm. and there is a, there's now a city neighborhood where that log cabin used to be. Yes. Right there in Voice of Healing, and that's his words, that's his writing. And even the writing isn't the same persona that we had. It's it's a lot more uh, a lot more educated, you know. This was this was very clearly written. And then I went back and I started listening to some of these recordings that I had and I was shocked, man. At some versions he's in Kentucky, some versions he's in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm like you, John. I, I've been down to Burksville different times, certainly, uh, and have, have seen the area, been there, known people. Uh, you know, we have known, certainly at our church, uh, people of William Branham's family in the Burksville area as well. Uh, and, you know, heard the stories. There's people who from our church who lived even in the Burksville area, uh, you know, back as early as the, the 30s, 40s. Uh, and, and knew some of the people all the way back then. And, you know, we know for sure, John, that that cabin that William Branham pointed to was a prop. You know, that mm-hmm. was not his actual home where he was born in. Uh, the location that most people go to is completely wrong, right? Like, they, they've they've misled them about the actual location right. of the cabin. Uh, and, and we know that from William Branham's older family members who uh, live in that area. And we also know, John, and this is something, an interesting fact, none of William Branham's family um, in the area of Burksville, none of that extended family is in the message. Not one none. of them that I know of, right? Like, none of them, right? <laughs> right, not one. None, none of them believe the stories he told, right? So, yeah. I mean, that that's that's an interesting, uh, uh, interesting thing as well. And we know, too, that... Uh, he, William Branham, that, that version of the story that, that we know about, especially that part about the pillar of fire coming in the window, right? Coming oh, down yes. and landing on the pillow. <laughs> Do you, I, I actually, I'm, I'm curious, you've got this big library behind you and this is, yeah. this is a big deal. Um, I, I wasn't made aware of this until like 2015 or 16. I believed the story of the angel or the light coming down and circling around in the room I'm told that the earlier versions of that story are different. Do you have in that library, right. do you have a copy? So I, yes, I pulled off my book. shelf before this. This is a first edition copy of William Branham, A Man Sent from God. Right. This was wrote uh, why William Branham's mother was still alive. And you'll find it really wasn't up until about the time she died that he made up the pillar of fire story coming down on the bed. And really? all of the yeah, in all of the early versions of his of of the telling of the story, uh, and and even up you know through her life, this is 1950. The version of the story does not include a pillar of the fire coming down on the bed. In fact, what what it says if if you future come into here and, and read it. It, it says, and I can just kind of paraphrase it, it, says, As the day dawned, the birds had already begun singing, and it seemed to my father that the morning star shined a little brighter. That's wow. it. Wow. That's that much is, different that than it. the version I had. Right. And so by the time you get a little, you know, a few years down the road from there and his mother's passed away, then that turns into a, a pillar of fire came in the window and landed on the pillow where I was, right? So we... And and the we only the, witness, the only witness to the event yeah. is now gone. Right, exactly. He right. he waited until she was gone. His his father was already passed away at that point. So you know, did a pillar of fire come in the window? Uh, certainly, the only person that tells us that is William Branham, and he didn't start telling us that version until after every other living witness was hmm. was dead and gone, as far as as far as we know. So wow. So there's that, right? And then the other thing is his birth date, John, and that's that's a that's an interesting thing, is we know, um, and certainly your research has done wonders just pulling this information out. But William Branham had multiple stage personas, right? Right. And and before he was before he was presenting himself as an Elijah figure, he was actually presenting himself as the Moses figure. Yes, I was shocked okay. when I learned that. 
Yes, and uh, and and maybe for our listeners, you you kind of can pick that up. Uh, he was still in the Moses persona when he had his initial experience with the angel giving him right. his gifts. Because you remember the angel said, uh, as uh, Moses was given two signs, so you'll be given two signs, right? right. He was still in his Moses persona uh, at that time in his ministry. And his his early his birthday periods in that time that he would give was also tied to his Moses persona, right? And so uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about his changing birthdays, John. Yeah, I... I mean, I was completely surprised because the, again, the life story cassette tape that I had that that I grew up listening to, it told the story of you know how the stars and the planets aligned on this day, and um, it was what was it, April the sixth, nineteen oh nine, I think is the date that he used, and it had to be that date, you know, because the stars and the planets aligned. It had to be that specific date. And he tells the story of how a fortune teller um, who, you know, if you look on my website, you can read about Madame Mimi. I think I've identified who this fortune teller was. But he talks about how this fortune teller told him he's born on a sign, yada, yada. And um, goes on, you know, in uh, during the course of the story, he is giving the Moses stage persona. He says... The angel came down and met me in the room and said, As Moses was given two signs, so will you be given two signs. And me, you know, I grew up in message churches and message cult churches where the pastors talked about this is what William Branham said about the Bible, not what actually the Bible says. None of us, myself, my family, nobody sitting there listening to the cassette tapes or talking about the sermons, nobody even stopped to think, wait a minute, Moses was given three signs, not two. There was the <laughs> yeah, turning the water to blood. There was uh, the staff. <laughs> he even got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, he even got the, this alleged angel got the got the number of signs wrong. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's just whenever I go back and I look at, the, the different stage personas, it blows my mind that we didn't catch it. But in studying, you know, I'm no psychologist, but studying the limited psychology that I do know, through cognitive dissonance, the mind will take two opposing, fully contradicting thoughts and then try to merge them through cognitive dissonance. So this this will be very difficult for listeners to understand, but once I came in contact with the version where he went to Indiana and his father, I think he even preached his father's funeral. He, his father died, you know, 1936, I think it was. My mind actually b- merged those. I believe both that his father died whenever he was a child in the log cabin and also that his father died when he was a, you know, when he was a preacher. Yeah, so so we have these conflicting birth dates uh, that that he gave to his audiences, to his listeners, and there was one date he would use when he used his Elijah persona. There was another date he used when he used his uh, Moses persona. Right. And, uh, and, right. And that transition, that transition, uh, he was using both uh, overlapping for a while, but the mm-hmm. full transition to that Elijah persona really started happening in the middle and late fifties. Yeah. Uh, and he and in the Moses piece, he started to <clears throat> talk about it anymore. Started to phase long. out. Exactly. You know, and, and it's in- interesting. I did not realize this until recently. Um, there's this period of time that is unaccounted for. William Brennan just disappears, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then he comes back, and then um, Davis. Uh, what was it? 1938, I think, when Davis went to prison. William Brennan's mentor. Right. There's this. There's another period of time where there are some huge gaps. Yeah, and you go from about what forty-one to forty-four, right, to almost right. nothing. Yeah, in about, I want to say it was about 1950. William Branham claims that there's a Mormon prophecy about him coming, right? And whenever I started looking at this, I thought, well, this must be the you know, the Latter-day Saints, the Joseph Smith. And I was saying, how did Joseph Smith have a prophecy about William Branham? But no, it was the um, church, what was it? The Church of Christ with the Elijah message is the actual sect of 
uh, it was a splinter group of the Latter-day Saints. They started in 1938, I believe it was. And William Branham actually uses this. There was a, so there was a guy named William, um, let me look up his name. His name is William Draves, I think it was. And William Draves started claiming that he was visited from John the Baptist, and he called him the messenger. And, um, you know, he broke, he broke off from the main sect, and he formed this Elijah message. And William Branham says that William, he doesn't mention Draves by name, but he is referring to Draves' alleged visitation. And he says that Draves has, quote, unquote, thus saith the Lord, that I'll send my servant William Branham up the West Coast. And so about the same time that he transitions from his Mormon prophecy to his, or his Mormon, or his, sorry, about the same time he transitions from his Moses ministry and persona to his Elijah persona, he starts doing this by transitioning using a prophecy from a splinter group of the Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I know. That, that's incredible. You know, I've, I've looked at that same, uh, those same quotes from William Brown when he talks about that as well and he he he's somehow for some reason was associating with these uh fundamentalist mormon sects in that time period right. which, which is again it's like an entirely lost fact right. what was william branham doing i mean we're talking like flds type sects yeah. of the yeah. of the mormon church you know the polygamists the really the really out there uh mormon sects and Somehow he was with them. Somehow he was there. Somehow they told him these prophecies that apparently had come about him. And he's quoting them in the 50s when he's out preaching, yeah. saying, hey, I fulfilled the Mormon's prophecy. Yeah. Well, uh, and what, it, It's what's, bizarre. What's funny, I have a copy. If you go to the website, william-branham.org, and type in William Draves, I have a copy of the, the actual prophecy. And it, it wasn't even a prophecy. He says that the messenger came and met me. And here's the transcript of what this quote unquote messenger said. And if you read the whole thing, it's actually referring to members of the church body inside of this little tiny sect. And and doesn't he give like 50 different names in there? Several names. One of the 50s, William Brown. Yeah. And he's talking about this person is going to be these, this group of people I've chosen to be elders. This group of people is a teacher. You know, he's basically the way in which a lot of these fundamentalist church sects work is they, when somebody asks to be an elder, they don't just say, okay, you're an elder. A lot of them will say, well, I have to have the word of faith or the word of prophecy. Well, this particular sect had to have the word of the messenger. So Draves would go to his house and you know, do whatever it was that he did and come back with this paper that, oh, the messenger said, yes, you can be an elder. So the question that I have concerning that is when William Branham made the transition, you know, William Branham was still growing the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect during those years. And I grew up a large part of my life in Kansas, right near Missouri, and their Branhamism spread quickly through Missouri. So what I wonder also, um, one of the uh, obituaries mentions William Branham living in Kansas when yeah, his brother Yeah, I've read died. that as well. Right. So what, what I actually wonder, is William Branham actually in that church? Was it actually him that they were referring to, or was it a different one? And I, there's no way for me to answer that. Right, right. There, there are certain things along those lines that are just open questions, right, John, that we, right. we don't really know. William Branham says enough stuff to... To indicate he was there and he was part of it, but then in other places, you know, he completely contradicts himself. Uh, so yeah. there, there's definitely stuff going on there that we don't uh, fully know about. That would certainly be interesting to know more about. Maybe some of our listeners will, uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. some listeners in Kansas uh, who are part of those churches will know and can tell us, right? <laughs> yeah. And if you can't tell, I'm chomping at the bit. We have so many exciting upcoming oh, yes. episodes. I'm, I've strayed far from the, <laughs> the Burksville. Yeah. So back to Burksville. I, I've had, I've had several, uh, not several, but I've had a few family members of the Branham family contact me. One of them um, deems himself to be the family historian. 
And they're just in awe that this man was able to do this thing that they all realized was nothing but stage personas, but it grew so big and they're just shocked. They, they don't recognize him as any spiritual leader at all. He was, you know, this was, if you watch the Bonanza show, this was like the guy with the traveling snake oil, you know, go to town to town. Mm -hmm. But so back to the story, um, maybe, uh, maybe we could mention what is William Branham's real middle name? Yes. Yes. That shocked me. Yeah. You know, uh, so we all we all know William Branham's name is William Marion Branham, right, John? It had to be. It had to had be to seven be. letters. It had to be M A R I O N, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so there's there's another thing that he didn't tell until after both of his parents had already died, and that was his middle name. Right. <laughs> and 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 we know, John. We you know there's. We, we have government records, you know, for example, we have, I got a copy of his draft card, and you might be able to put yeah. a better one up, John, but we've got, you know, like his gra- draft card, his name is not William Marion Branham, it's William Marvin, Marvin Branham <laughs> right. is actually right. William Branham's name, right? And so he, yeah. you know, after his parents died, he started telling people his middle name was Marion because he needed to have seven letters in every name yeah. for that for for that type, you know, uh, which, which is, you know, it's kind of bizarre, honestly, when you think about that stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I, he, he I said, he, he said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he said that there had to be a man with seven letters that came to the apostolic faith at the end time. He said it had to be like Abraham and he was big into these numbers, right? So a- Abraham had seven letters in his name in the English version of Abraham, in the English translation of Abraham. The original did not, obviously. It had, what, four letter, four characters. But what's interesting is he says it had to be seven to the apostolics, and I, William Branham, am the only one with seven letters. Look at Billy Graham. He has six. Billy Graham was sent to Sodom. I was sent to, you know, the promised land. And he totally ignores Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M. He says it had to end in ham and it had to be seven letters. <laughs> Charles yeah. Parham had seven letters, and he was yeah. literally the founder. He's the founder, of pretty well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I about that numerology stuff, you know, you read the Bible. I mean, there's no uh, chapter that explains numerology in the Bible. I mean, it, no. it's not there, right? Like, you wonder where in the world did he, where in the world did he even get these ideas about this number means this, and that number means that, and that that other number means the other thing. And there's actually a book uh, I, I could pull it off my shelf, but my finger's touching it right there. Uh, it's one of Clarence Larkin's books, and the numerology that William Branham used it comes straight out of that book, right? Yeah. Six is the number of a man, and so forth. All those things came right out of that book, and it, it seems like you know even his numerology was plagiarized stuff, John. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it, it's crazy. But yeah, if you want to see the Marvin, you can go to the website, william-branham.org. Just type in Marvin in the search, and you'll see the draft card that we're referring to. Yeah, and so those kind of things leave you wondering, you know, like what, how could, how could, uh, how could he do that kind of thing to us? And right, I'm not looking for an answer, but it just leaves us with this question of, you know, he, he presented these things to us as fact, and we can come back and, we, you know, we can pull up evidences like this that just show that he was just yeah. beyond a shadow of a doubt just completely making stuff up well what um, i've noticed i i read a lot if you can't tell already i i used to come home with two paper sack grocery sacks full of books every week from the library so i've read a lot and i was fascinated uh, I really like to read mysteries and crime. I like to read about criminals and understanding the criminal mind because my mind doesn't think like this, but there are people who are just wired differently, and it fascinates yeah. me. And um, I look at some of the way that the criminals escape their past. A lot of times they will just make things up about themselves so that you can't really follow the rabbit trail of fact back to the actual history. And part of me wonders, was there some criminal element to this? Yeah, yeah. You know, that that's also a, certainly an interesting thing as we move on because there's definitely criminal connections to William Branham's family, right? Right. And, 
you know, when we maybe think about his move to New Albany, too, um, when he talks about having that vision uh, before he moved, well, John, we, we can go through the records, we can pull his, his birth information, the census records, and we can we can determine that William Branham was roughly with, within a few months of two years old when his family right. moved to right. Indiana, right? Yeah, only one so, other sibling would have been even in the cabin, and he mentions it, all of them. Exactly. So how could a, you know, I, I've had children, John, you've had children. Do two-year-olds uh, speak in, you know, do two-year-olds even uh, have a, a, a halfway decent comprehension of the English language? I mean, I don't, not my two-year-olds. Well, well so, I was born a historian, and I was born, this light came in the room and said, you, John, will be the right. history of, <laughs> no, my, my kids didn't. I mean, yeah. he was doing so, good to get them to say dada. Right. right. So, so, so William Branham was, would have been probably between 18 months and two years old when this, when he's out by himself in the right. yard and a, an, and an angel or a whirlwind in a tree talks to him and tells him well, you're going to move to a place near New Albany, and so you're you're really you you look at that as a reasonable person, and and, and you wonder, a, <laughs> I have, I mean, can you remember a single thing from when you was two years old? I don't know anybody yeah. who has a single memory from when they were eighteen months or two years old. So how did that happen, right? I, and two, I, asked, I asked that to somebody the other day. So one of the big arguments from the cult is. William Branham gives different descriptions about this alleged angel and gives different, even different years that he was given his divine healing commission. And their argument is, well, can you remember back that long? Will you remember everything? I mean, this wasn't, you know, this was a big event, an angel from God allegedly come in the room. How can you forget that? But take it a step further. How could you, I couldn't even remember anything before age five that I said, you know, in fact, the earliest real memory that I have of a actual conversation, I think might have been age 14 or something. Most of those memories are gone. Yeah, and if you if you listen to when William Branham tells that story, he in those stories he's always given the impression, you know, he's five, six years old in that neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really goes uh, back to him just misleading that whole story yeah. of his move to Indiana. Um, and gradually shifting back, the timeline. It, exactly. So William Branham never grew up in Kentucky. Uh, he no. he moved to will he moved to Indiana certainly in, in when he was around two years old. Um, you know all the stories he told about growing up down there and running in the hills and getting the coon grease with all his brothers and sisters in the eye. That yeah. never happened. That never right. happened. Uh, and in, so, in fact, some of them weren't born until he was much much older. You know, if you look at the just the the timeline span of when they were born, the siblings, there's no way this could even be possible. Right. So when you when you get to their move over to Indiana, uh, that's where you know we start to pick up some interesting facts around the criminal activities of his family. Right. Right. Um, and so we know from newspaper records that uh, Charles Branham, his father certainly had uh, quite a few run-ins with the law. And mm-hmm. William Branham even talks about, uh, and maybe you want to talk about this, John, a point that he had a knife fight and nearly killed a man. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the family the family rumors that I'm told by the, the people that I've spoken with in Burksville, the rumor is that he actually killed a man, and there's no evidence of this. I did search the newspapers for a long time looking, Branham is a very common name, and what's interesting, I found a William Branham who did kill a man. Um, it was a William that killed him, and there was this Hatfield and McCoy situation over, you know, deep in Kentucky. But I never could find anything about William. But the family rumor is that the father did kill a man, and he was running from the law. What's interesting, and what's make makes me question that a bit, Jeffersonville is where the state pen was. So if you were running from the law, why would you run to the city where the you yeah. know, where the prison the is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We William Branham did tell us in uh, one of his 1959 uh, life stories that his father did nearly kill a man, and that's right. really what caused them to have to run from Kentucky and move to Indiana. 
Right. Uh, so, you know, we're not too far out on a limb when we, we say that. And and from there, the criminal activities of his family just, just kind of explode. Right. Um, we know his dad, uh, his dad was involved in uh, bootlegging and, and moonshining. And William Branham helped his dad with the family business. And William Branham talked a little bit about that, you know, in, in his career. Uh, and I know for me, uh, I, I always kind of imagine, you know, William Branham was this uh, his dad was kind of like Otis from Andy Griffith, right? right? Like the town drunk, right? This friendly right. town drunk. And if he got in trouble, you know, he'd kind of find his way out of it and, you know, never hurt nobody, just harmless as a fly. And they just, he just enjoyed a, a drink of moonshine once in a while, right? Yeah, that's kind of right. how I, that's the impression I had of his father. But that is very far from the truth, you know. Uh, yeah. His father is like uh, somewhere between Otis and John Dillinger, to be, right. to be more right. precise, right? Yeah, I will, I will never forget. So I had, again, I had the Kentucky version of the, you know, the history. Whenever I found the life story where he's running, where he's working the moon sti- moonshine still, um, for the listeners that aren't aware of this, in this area, Jeffersonville, Indiana, we're right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, is where all the big distilleries are. If you want to buy bourbon in the United States or even in the world, Bourbon comes from Kentucky. That's why it's called Kentucky bourbon. And in this area, especially during Prohibition, this turned into a big thing because they're still producing liquor for the mob and, you know, for all of the people who are still drinking illegally. And I'm, I'm going to read this quote about uh, the father because this, this just blew my mind. Remember, William, uh, William D. Upshaw who was a congressman who is you know, very famous in this message cult, was also the leader of Prohibition. Uh, he was the one who basically turned several states dry. Georgia was the first. He was working very closely with Roy Davis, William Branham's mentor, and Upshaw in this area would have been public enemy number one. If you're in this area and you're, you're working a job at distilleries and this guy's telling you, I'm going to shut them all down, you're going to be very angry because this man's going to cost you your job. So let me read this quote about the father. I never heard of in my life of this gallant man, Mr. Upshaw. You may know in my talk that I'm uneducated. I was raised in a big family of 10 children. I got not even a grammar school education. Seventh grade was as far as I got in school. I had to work and take care of nine children. My father wasn't very healthy, died young, and I had to work. I never got my education. I would have known, I would have knew Mr. Upshaw. So how does that fit with what you're talking about with, you know, the liquor distilleries? I just can't, I I can't imagine in this city that he, that he would even say something like this. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no, there is zero chance that William Branham did not know who William Upshaw None. was. You know, not saying he met him personally, but he knew that name. He knew right. what he was. Upshaw was of national fame, uh, just as other figures uh, that we'll talk about in other episodes that are just incredibly notorious. William Branham, there's no chance at all that he did not know or have heard right. of these people, yeah. uh, especially in the, in the community in the area that he lived in. And, yeah. you know, you, you uh, as we... As we talk about that too, there, you, there's there's this weird dichotomy, this weird paradox too, because on one side uh, you've got William Branham and his family is deeply involved in producing moonshine, right? Yes. And you know we've got there's there's newspaper records, there's court court records of of William Branham's father's trial. There is uh, different historical documentation we can pull out to to look at. It's it's all on the website that you have, John. I have some copies of it here, but right. William Branham's father, they were, he wasn't just got a moonshine still out in the backyard producing moonshine right. for his own benefit and a few of his neighbors, right? Right. Now, they're mass producing alcohol. They are part of the key supply network uh, for Al Capone's, you know, speakeasy yes. network, right? So they're, yes. they are supply, they are literally supplying liquor directly to the mob in Chicago, right? And uh, they're involved in transporting it. They're involved in producing it. And, you know, when William Branham talks about helping his father at his stills, he's actually talking about his involvement with supplying liquor to 
Al Capone's criminal inter- right? That's actually so what was going on. That. Yeah. <laughs> and so William's father, William Branham's father, of course, you know, ends up uh, troubled, right? Uh, the obviously the Anti Saloon League, different ones, don't like what's going on, are, are fighting prohibition, and they come and they uh, shut down his stills. You know, there's there's a gun battle. Uh, he ends up going to prison for right. what he did. Right. And uh, all of this is all this is you know completely well documented. And so uh, this all is going on. And so on on one side you've got this deep connection to alcohol and crime, but then you know William Branham, Upshaw, different other figures seem to be so opposed to prohibition or so opposed to alcohol, right? And mm-hmm. uh, in favor of prohibition, yet these men are also working together. So right. you and there's this really weird. Uh, it doesn't. It, it it to the mind it don't make sense. How can you how can you take this these people over here uh, who are literally the producers of the liquor during prohibition, the the distributors of it, and these people over here who are the leaders against it, and put them together and they're friends. How yeah. does that work? So. It leaves these questions. Yeah. It, so from my research, and again, I was just, my mind was blown whenever I saw that this was for Al Capone. I remember, I think this was on the copy of the life story that I grew up, but he talks about his family was poor. They lived next to this Mr. Wathen who I didn't know who he was. And, um, I, you know, years later, whenever the searchable message comes, uh, transcripts came out. I remember looking up Wathen. You know, I was looking not from a critical critical perspective, but because I was this devout message cult believer, right? <clears throat> and um, he says a few things about Wathen. He says his father was, and I'm quoting, his father was a chauffeur for Wathen. And um, yet the, the life that he describes for his father was not that of a chauffeur. They lived in, you know, in the horse stables in one story, or they lived in a house next to Mr. Wathen. Well, here in Jeffersonville, you can go see the mansion where Wathen lived. Wathen was the owner of the Louisville baseball team. He was the head of the distilleries. He was, when Prohibition hit, he was one of the few who kept his distillery open under a medicinal license. So he was producing liquor on the books as medicinal, but then he got busted because, or almost busted, because off of the record, he was he had this whole supply network of people working their homemade liquor stills, and they were producing liquor off of the books outside of his factories, and that's how he was supplying the, the Chicago mob. And the government had no idea, right? And I found this article in... It was in Indianapolis. You know, the Klan was big in Indiana. In Indianapolis, they were the Klan was trying to clean up Indiana, and they were bragging that they had went and invaded Jeffersonville, and they had just shut down a large network of liquor production, people who were operating these stills. Right. And we know the Anti-Saloon League, the Klan, was, was very active and involved right. in trying to shut down these illegal operations. And so at at that level, you know, the clan and these these bootleggers were at enemies with each other, fighting each other, right? right. And we have records in the newspaper of, of gun battles, of of really uh, violent things happening between these two groups of people in the period. And it's about the same time that William Branham has a mysterious hunting accident and is shot yes. in both legs, right? Yes. Okay. So William Branham, he shot in both legs. Uh, you know, the official version is that he told everyone, of course, is he had a hunting accident. Right. right? But but it's it's happening in the same time frame that his father is getting in trouble, going to prison. Uh, the clan, the Anti Saloon League, is clamping down violently on the uh, people who are legally producing liquor, and so William Branham ends up shot in both legs in this period of time rush to the hospital, life-threatening injuries. And that's where, uh, what William Brown was, what, 14 years old when that happened, roughly? Approximately, 14? yeah. Okay. And 
that's when uh, the KKK connection really starts to come into the story too, which I know in our next episode we're going to talk about that a lot more. But the KKK comes and they pay William Branham's hospital bills um, after he shot in both legs. And and that, so that, that leaves an interesting question, you know, why did the Klan, uh, feel the obligation to step in and pay the medical bills of a boy who just was out having this hunting accident? Right. right. Uh, what what was going on there? There's an interesting point that he makes that I want to bring up also so we can remember it in the next episode. It's not just the KKK. When he mentions that the Klan paid his hospital bill, he pauses and he says, the KKK paid my hospital bill, pause, the Masons. So he is linking the Masonic community in this area to the Klan, which mm-hmm. is significant if you look at the history. Yeah, definitely. He he's saying they're the same people. The same people. Really that's that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, and so we know at that point in William Branham's life, fourteen years of age, he definitely had some friendship, some sympathy, some connection to the Klan at that point in his life. Because for whatever right. reason, whether he was part of them or whether they felt guilty, maybe maybe they were the ones that <laughs> shot him. Right. I mean, we don't know, right? All, all we can do is guess whatever reason they felt uh, an obligation to come pay his hospital bill. Yeah, he said there was a special place. I mean, picture this. He's speaking during the time whenever the Klan is widely recognized for killing African Americans, for stringing them up. I mean, this is a terrorist, this is a domestic terrorist organization. And he says they basically they have a special place in his heart. He'll never forget them as long as he lives because of this moment. Yeah. And I don't know about you, John, but this this event where he was shot uh, in both legs and nearly died at 14 years old, this is something that was never, ever talked about in, in the right. part of the message. I cut, right? these, this part of his life story, you know, what happened in his teenage years, these criminal things, did not know they existed right until yeah. you know you, you started to dig a little bit and my family <clears throat> talked about to some extent the criminal side of the Branham family but they never talked about Branham's involvement it was always the brothers or the father you know they my family did talk about it in private never in public yeah I think a couple more points. Definitely, I hope we can include before we wrap this one up, John. But one is this: the criminal activity of William Brown's family didn't end there. Uh, so right. they continue to be involved in these criminal enterprises for for years to come. After uh, at, you know, after his father goes to prison, because uh, William Branham, about what two years, roughly two three years after he shot, I believe around 1927 or so, he he. In his story, his official version, he packs up, he moves to Arizona to go get a better life, right? Right. Um, and while he's gone, his family has still definitely got these criminal things going on. His brother Edward murders a man, he's charged with right. murder in court, right? Um, there's other mysterious deaths that's going on, other criminal things is going on. And William Branham actually comes back from Arizona, back to this area after his brother Edward mysteriously dies after also mm-hmm. murdering somebody. Right. So that's another thing we're never, no one ever tells us Edward, William Branham's brother was a murderer and then mysteriously died. And William Branham right. came back to his funeral uh, from Arizona. Um, so yeah, in, in the Arizona story, I still have huge questions. I'm, you know, still trying to dig because he talks about, he grew up on was it Henshaw or Crenshaw Lane, and you know, in Phoenix, downtown Phoenix. This was a big place, right? But whenever his brother dies, this is the this is the obituary that's given by the uh, funeral parlor, saying that William Branham is saying that he's from Kansas. So he's yeah. telling us from he's at Arizona, and he's telling them that he's from Kansas. Right. Which is it, and why is he trying to hide where he is at? Exactly. Where was he during those years? And uh, I don't think. Correct me if I'm wrong, John. Do we have any firm evidence that he actually went to Arizona, right? Other than his testimony, I don't. Um, we don't, right? Like yeah, all, only thing. Yeah. 
that we'll get into it more, but I do have four photographs of William Branham from about that time, and they look like yearbook photos. So I'm assuming he went to college somewhere, but I don't believe it was Phoenix as he claimed he was in Phoenix. Right. So there's a strong indication that those years that he was, you know, in his version of life story, he was on a ranch doing rodeo work and stuff in Arizona, that he might actually have been in college. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I know Doug Weaver in his book uh, made some comments along that line too, because William Branham, you know, to us certainly presented himself as this completely uneducated, backward country hick kind of a person, right? Mm-hmm. But that could very well have just been part of his stage persona, because again, as, as Doug Weaver noted, you know, in his in his meetings and visitations to ministerial societies and educated groups, William Branham spoke in an entirely different manner. No yeah. slang, perfect English, professional polished grammar, right? And there was there was definitely an indication that all of the slang usage, all of the country language that he used when he talked in a lot of his meetings that we are familiar with uh, was not the way he always talked or the only way he could talk. He he chose to talk that way in those meetings for right. whatever effect that he was trying to, to, to get on his uh, listeners. Well, and remember, it was a Kentucky childhood stage persona. He put on the persona of a person who grew up where people talked like this. In Jeffersonville, people don't talk like this. No, uh, people talk as, like us. Yeah, I mean, so so picture it. Burksville was very near to the Cumberland River. It was, it was a booming place where you know if you're on the river, these locations on the river were usually the trade ports. So the cities grew rather large. Yeah. Jeffersonville before the flood was also large. It was nicknamed Little Las Vegas. And people like, you know, Al, Al Capone did come to Jeffersonville because there were casinos here. And uh, he would go into Louisville. There was the, what is it, the Seelbach Hotel, I think, in Louisville. Yeah. This was a big, big city. I will never forget the first time that I came across some of the early newspaper letter, letters to the editor that William Branham himself wrote, some statements that he made to the early newspapers, and even some of his early writings, this is not the Kentucky hillbilly that I remember growing up. This this was a educated man writing these things. Yeah, and you know when you listen to even his his hillbilly accent, like John, I know you and I, we know lots of people from the hills of Kentucky. Yeah, William Branham's accent is not a hills of Kentucky. Accent. Not even close. Not no. Even. It, uh, it, remind, it, it, it reminds me, have you ever seen a movie where somebody like Tom Cruise or somebody plays a Kentucky hillbilly? And exactly. They, this, they put on this fake accent that kind of yeah. sounds like Kentucky? That's what it is. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't, you know, when when, you, when you're when you out and you look back and you realize, you're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> William Branham didn't have a, a hillbilly Kentucky accent. Yeah. I don't know what it was, you know, now that I think about it. But it was not a Hills of Kentucky accent that, that and, he spoke And it's not of. even close to Hoosiers. Hoosiers sound no. entirely different than this. Yeah, they and, sound like, you know, me and you, John. <laughs> yeah, for, for people who are in other countries listening to this, Hoosiers is the nickname you give for people that were raised in Indiana with their dialect and their, their ways. They're usually known for basketball, right? Right. right. Indiana Hoosiers. <laughs> exactly. You know, if William Branham grew up in Indiana, which we know he did, his natural inclination to talk wouldn't be too far right. different, John, probably right. from what you and I are speaking in right now. I'm sure I'm sure the accent's changed a little bit in 100 years, but it hasn't yeah. changed, uh, you know, uh, that much. And uh, I don't know if and, you've seen it, but the cult, so the cult is transforming themselves. They're trying to, they're doing a lot of PR. They're trying to make themselves look like this humble little thing, and they're doing all of these outreach programs and good things instead of condemning all other Christians to hell like they have for years. But one of the things they do, they're producing these little children's coloring books and videos and Muppets, and I've looked at some of them, and it blows my mind because they know, the family knows this history. They're in contact with family in Kentucky. They know this history, 
but they sh- they show these little videos and coloring books, etc., of the cabin where he grew up in, where he and the brothers grew up in, and then when they do the Indiana side, they they paint this picture that it's like the old wild wild west where they've got horses and carriages and they've got you know horses on the street and you go to the i think one of them that i saw was a coloring photo of the general store in indiana well if you look at downtown jeffersonville from the era when william branham was there there was there was trains there was a trolley that went all around through three cities big buildings businesses not even close to what the stage persona had yeah, yeah. William Branham grew up in an urban environment, yep. you know, with which which was a, a really a nice community and city at the time. Honestly, right. I mean, I, I would think, but yeah, it, it's not at all what he sold us. And mm-hmm. you know, one 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 last point. You know, when you read that quote uh, a little earlier uh, about William Branham talking about uh, his childhood, that quote right there contains something that that we believe growing up as well. William Branham said. His father died young, and he couldn't go to school and get an education because he had to work right. to take care of his brothers and sisters, right? Right. That, that was even in the quote you just read. Well, and again, sister's we, a big key there because of her yeah. age. <laughs> so there, there's no way that, that, is, that that's not true. I mean, we know William yeah. Branham's father died uh, well after he'd become a preacher. What, William Branham was, was William Branham in his 30s when his dad died, I think? Uh, yeah. His dad... I know his dad died, what, about the year 38 or 39, roughly? There, uh, there's only one point in history that I've identified where they all, if you look at their ages, I mean, William Branham is, he's, I think he's almost 20 when his sister's born. I'd have to go back and do the math. But there is one point at which they're all in the same household, but they're grown men. After his wife, Hope, died, and he, you and I know, and we'll get into it later, his ministry started much earlier than he said. So he's out on the road all the time. He had his mother watch his son, Billy Paul, after his wife Hope died. And on the census reports, they are living in the mother's household. And some of the other brothers are living there. Not all of them, but there is a point in time which he is with their brothers, but they're grown men. And they would probably slap the ice at the coon grease out of the mother's hand. You know, what are you doing to me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, that one more interesting point. One more thing we can be absolutely certain that he just made up. Right. right. And of course, there, there's versions of these stories where he gets bits that are more accurate than other bits. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, the the primary version he, at least I'm familiar with, what we grew up with, had these definitely terrible inconsistencies. And, and unfortunately, the kind that we're, the, the version we're familiar with is the kind we find in books like this, right? God's yes. Generals. The great the kind book of fairy that, tales. Yes, the, 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 the versions that, you know, most people outside the message would read that fairy tale version of his life story that never happened. And all of these other true details are covered up, hidden Right or unknown. So I, I think if I was going to sum up what we've talked about in this is William Brown definitely made up a whole bunch of stuff about his early childhood. Um, he definitely had connections. His family had connections to organized crime and the Klan, you know, in his childhood. And while we can't necessarily hold William Branham, we don't hold him, his childhood against him, right? You can't help what family you're born into, right, John? Right. Uh, you and I, you know, thank goodness for that, right? <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> Absolutely. Some people are born into a criminal family. Some people are born yeah. into a cult family, John. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't hold that against him. But, you know, it's important as a character study to know where people come from, what their early life influences were, um, because it, it a lot of that really does shape mm-hmm. shape them as a character, as a person for the rest of their life a lot of times. Yeah. And, you know, the, the dis- number of discrepancies is so serious uh, in there that... Uh, you know, maybe we'll talk about this in a later episode. At a certain point, William Branham starts rewriting his early life history. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be excited when we get to the point when he started doing that and why he started doing that. So. Yeah, it's it's really a big deal. I mean, I know for we've got a wide audience. Some people listening are were in the message cult of following of William Branham and other Others like yourself grew up in either a splinter group or some offshoot. And then a wide majority are just curious because of William Branham's foundational teaching that created the new apostolic reformation that exists today. 
But for those of us who grew up in the primary sect and even in some of the splinter groups, we'll understand this a lot, what I'm about to say a lot deeper than I think you who were in a different offshoot or some of the people never involved. But the life stories to us were almost as important as the text in the Bible. We viewed it as a, it was a new book of Acts, and here's the life of the prophet. It was the, I've heard a minister say this is the second book of Elijah, right? And I've, Billy Paul, William Branham's son, used to go on these tours talking about how he wasn't an old man yet because California had not sank, even though he's, you know, he's almost past his life at this point. But he would say, it's like a gun. You hold the message up here and it's your hindsight and the Bible is here and, and you look through the Bible, through the message at the Bible to hit your target. Mm-hmm. And these life stories, most people listening are going to say, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if he lied? And even in some of the splinter groups, what does it matter if he lied yeah. about his past? It's no big deal, right? But for the cult of personality that William Branham created and for the main sect and most of the splinter groups before those splinter groups emerged with a new prophet, new apostle, leader, etc. This was a book of Acts. This was a big deal. This was our Bible. And like I said, people read not the Bible for the Bible they would read what William Branham said about the Bible. And even when reading the Bible, they would think in their minds, well, William Branham said X, Y, and Z. This was a man who we were taught brought the literal truth, that brought the truth for the end day, and he's not even honest about himself. So this is a huge deal for the cult of personality. Right. You're spot on with all of that, John. And and I, I hope we really get to an episode where we can talk deep about William Branham's the theological implications of what William right. Branham said and did, because he it, William Branham is the principal architect of restorationist thought in charismatic Christianity. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's not me saying that. That's you know, Christian historians will will say that. Right. William Branham was key to defining the restoration doctrines that are carried on into charismatic Christianity, the third wave of Pentecostalism, uh, the Jones, the Brownstown revival, the Toronto blessing. Uh, you know, the the Kansas City prophets. It, Kansas City prophets. The Association of Vineyard Churches. His his restoration teachings. Uh, flowed into all of these groups all the way down into the new apostolic reformation that we see uh, that's out there today. So, And all the way uh, up to the family that you see in Netflix, the ones that are, you know, right, influencing right. politicians. This is a big deal. Right. And, and the people in our groups, John, uh, where I came from, where you came from, we would look at all of these new apostolic reformation types, these charismatic types, and we'd say, well, we got the original. We are the true successors of William Branham, right? And, right. and you guys are the frauds, right? Like right. that's how we would we would have approached them. We got the genuine. Mm-hmm. You you got some corrupt version of of what he taught, and we're not interested, right? But so. just take one time where any one of them says anything positive about William Branham, and they'll quote it behind pulpits. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. You remember when Benny Hinn come out and he said, and William yeah. Branham had the most oh. accurate discernment. This went all through the message, man. This, And this is the guy that sling, slings his coat and knocks people down, right? Exactly. I remember Jim Baker did his piece one yes. time on the 33 vision. You know, it just right. spreads like, like, oh, look, see, we told you we've we've influenced all these people. They just don't have as much revelation right. as we do. But uh, see, they're all our, they're all our Brother Branham's product as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Craziness. This is exciting. So we, as you can tell, I've jumped all over the place because I'm chomping at the bits. We have so much information and it's really hard because it's all connected. It's all interconnected. And I want to make sure that we're bringing up the points that we're going to have in future episodes. So hope I didn't confuse the audience. But if if you like what you hear, there's going to be a lot more. If you've enjoyed the show and the one information, we'll um, on the website, you can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. And uh, Charles might be might be good because you're about to open your church, so it would be good to maybe talk about what's coming. 
Yeah, well, that that's the plan. Uh, we we've been in uh, working on getting a building here for for a little while, and you know if everything goes through and, and the Lord blesses it, well, we'll we'll have a lease and have a building here in in fairly short order. That's certainly my hope. Um, and things are going great. We've got a, a good ministering team uh, that's come together uh, for the church, and and we've got a, a a good network of people that we're working with. Uh, to uh, to move things forward, so we're very thankful for that. Awesome, awesome. Well, that's that's exciting. Now, this episode will come out after all of this happens, but I uh, wanted to make sure people are aware this this was coming. So, if you enjoyed our show and want information, check it out: william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and his healing revivals, you can also read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. And join us next week. We've got another exciting episode coming.